We're on our um, series, uh, Design for Glory, that, <clears throat> that every human being was designed to experience and carry as image bearers of God, the very glory of God. That having lost that ability in the fall, in the fall of sin, that now what Christ has done for the believers is to give us the the ability now to what Paul do what Paul says is to possess the glory of Christ. And we've talked some about of the glory of Christ as revealed in the scriptures that there's the beauty of Christ, his his love, his his justice, his mercy, uh, all of the virtues of Christ, his his patience, his wisdom, to possess all of that because you're in union with Christ. But not only his beauty, but his worth and his value, that he has set the worth of your life in an unconditional way so that you you can not draw your worth from your performance, but you draw your worth from your relationship with Christ. And then also, as hard as it is sometimes to face the challenges of life, he has united his victories and his ultimate victory to you. And so it becomes really important in the believer's life that we not only have the capability of possessing the glory of Christ, but we actually are being formed in such a way that that design for glory is being filled by the very presence of Christ. And so we come this week to the to, to probably one of the most important implications of being possessors of the glory, and, and that is that what you worship is what you become. And so Jesus teaches really clearly in John chapter 4 on not only the importance of worship, but what worship really entails. And this, this is so important because Worship isn't just about taste. It's not just about preferences. Worship, that is true worship, is prescribed by the one that you're worshiping. It's not the worshiper doesn't prescribe the worship. The one receiving the worship, the one to be worshiped, has the prescription for worship. And so the prescription for true worship comes from Jesus in John chapter 4, verse 23. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. So in John 4, we have this amazing prescription of worship. But an unexpected person is the one that Jesus is teaching. And through her, he teaches us about worship. She's a woman of Samaria. She's shocked that he even speaks to her. And in some ways, we should be shocked. And actually, all of our thinking about worship and our thinking about about, uh, the relationships of men and women, all of these things should be transformed by this conversation. Worship is about real life. It's not just a compartment of your religious life. It's the 
root issue, not the symptom. The story touches on adultery, human appetites, racial conflict. And in the midst of this real life issue, Jesus teaches and shows how the Father seeks worshipers from the least likely. This is a Samaritan, a woman. So the scripture tells us that he's at Jacob's well. Now that's a significant detail because Jacob's well would predate Jerusalem and the temple. It's in the town of Sychar, a town in Samaria. This conflict between the Samaritans and the, the Judeans is very old. The northern kingdom had separated from the southern kingdom in 975 BC. My understanding is these northern kings set up their own worship centers, and they did so because they didn't want the people going back to Jerusalem and reforming the old alliances with David and his heirs. And so they made it to where there was no need to return to Jerusalem. But the northern kingdom strayed quickly from the ways of the Lord. And, and quickly and very, very deeply away, very, very far away from the Lord. They were taken into exile in 722 BC. What was left behind, these, these that are called Samaritans, they're, they're left behind. They married and intermarried with foreigners. They did not follow the whole of the law. They followed their own version of the law. And so there was a tremendous conflict, uh, especially hostilities arose in the rebuilding of the temple after the return from the Babylonian exile because they were not allowed to be a part of the rebuilding of the temple. And so there had been a lot of hostility, almost a thousand years of hostility, and Jesus walks right into this hostility. He sits down and he asks for a drink. And she says to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Here Jesus reveals about himself that he has living water, and he calls it the gift of God. And the woman is not yet on Jesus' wavelength at all. She's still thinking very uh, in the material realm, not the spiritual realm. And says, how can you give me water when you don't even have a bucket? And Jesus says, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. See, the amazing thing is not that he can give her water without a bucket, but how satisfying this water is. is a water that satisfies forever. And, and basically saying that instead of having to, ha, ha, having to draw water or life from outside of yourself, you begin to have that life bubble up from within and your very own soul becomes a spring of that living water. And John 7, he makes it even clearer. He says, out of, out of, out of the person's heart who drinks of the water that Jesus offers will flow rivers of living water. And then John makes this comment. He says, this he said about the spirit 
whom those who believed in him were to receive. So a, a key thing in our lives is the symptoms of our life, symptoms of sin in our lives, symptoms of negative emotions in our lives, the symptoms of areas of bondage in our lives. These are symptoms. They are not the root issue. And, and so Jesus is saying, you have the capability of a spring from within of living water flowing from you, not only for you, but to others as well. And that this is, this is, this is the, the, you know, the true gift of God to every believer that the Holy Spirit within your soul, within your spirit is flowing. And he's not just a little bit of water, he's rivers of living water. Now, that offer hit her, and she says, give me this water so I'll never have to be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. But see, she, it hits her, but she's still thinking physically. She's still thinking mostly about her, her thirst. And so she's, she's, she's not there yet. And so Jesus doesn't give up on her, and he doesn't give up on her at all. He has his sights on saving this woman. And he has, he's going to help create in her a worshiper in spirit and truth of God. Now he goes from talking about living water to saying, go call your husband. So he touches on the most vulnerable spot in her life. This is one of the things that God knows exactly. The quickest way to our heart is through the wounds that have been that have been lingering there that have been there so she has all of this past baggage and she's still designed and destined for glory but before she can she can experience her design for glory she has to see her life differently than she has in the past you see Jesus makes it really clear everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to light, lest this deed should be exposed. So concealed sin, Jesus is talking about, is, is, is a condition that keeps us from seeing the light. One way to look at sin is sin deadens your spiritual senses. So that even while you're ripping your own soul apart in order to get legitimate needs met, but in these illegitimate ways, it rips your soul to shreds. It, it, it shatters the health of your, of your person. But you don't even feel it because it seems so normal and necessary. Concealed sin keeps us from seeing the light. But Jesus is laying bare this woman's bankruptcy spiritually. You have had five husbands, he says. And the man you're sleeping with now is not your husband. Now, she immediately wants to avoid this subject altogether, so she, she switches to the controversy, a theological controversy between the Samaritans and the Jews. And she says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. Did you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship? Because he's trying to evade the conviction of her sin. Jesus never goes back to the issue of adultery because that's the symptom, not the root. 
So he immediately has pushed open the door of her heart and he's gone right to the root issue, her, her worship, what she worships. And so Jesus responds by saying that controversy can't compare in any, in any way to the importance of how and whom you worship. So the first place he says is the how. He says, it doesn't matter if we, you worship on this mountain or in Jerusalem, because the hour's coming when, when people will be worshiping God, the Father, from everywhere. And, and truthfully, the Bible's really clear. It's possible to worship God in vain in any place. Did God not say, this people honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me in Isaiah 29, 13? So the issue is not where, but how. It's the heart, it's the issue of the heart. But he also is very blunt with her about the object or the person of worship. And she says, you do not know the God you're even worshiping. And so he's very blunt with her and says, your knowledge of God is deficient. Therefore, your worship is not true. And so even though there's, there's you know, Jacob's well, even though there's Mount Gerizim, there are these places that have been set apart as sacred places, the person that is to be worshiped is unknown by the people worshiping him. And so it matters so deeply, not where, but the how and the whom. You got to know the one you worship. And so what he's saying here is worship must be vital and real in the heart. And worship must, must rest on a true perception of God. He's saying there has to be spirit and there has to be truth. He's saying the hour is coming and now is because Jesus has come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. So one way to look at this is the fuel of worship, of true worship, is is the, the truth of God. The furnace of that worship is, is your own spirit. So, it, so it, the how of the spirit and the, the, the person you're worshiping, you know, they go together. The truth has fuel to fuel worship, but the furnace where the, where the worship has to take place is your own spirit. And then there's a heat of worship, a fervency kind of worship that comes from you being vitally connected to the source, to this living God. And out of those affections of the heart, reverence, contrition, trust, gratitude, joy, these are, these are the heat that worship produces. But you see, if you look at these three things, truth, and then the spirit, your own spirit, I'm saying, and then your affections, something's missing from this picture. There's a furnace, there's fuel, there's heat, but we're not, there's no fire. And so the fuel of truth and the furnace of our spirit does not automatically produce the heat of worship. I've seen people who have the truth. I've seen people who have passion. But there has to be a fire that's not our fire. Our passion is not the fire. 
And our passion is not the fuel. Our passion is the result of the fire. And Jesus is saying the fire is the Holy Spirit himself. There is no ignition in worship. There is no fire without the Holy Spirit. Now, I, can't, I can never read that or think about that without thinking about the burning bush in a way. Is that the bush is on fire, but, but the bush is not consumed. So there's some sense in which, the, the, again, the, the bush itself is not the fuel. You know, because usually fire is consuming, whether it's wood or, or straw or whatever it might be, the fire consumes it and the, the wood or the straw is the fuel. And we have to be careful in some ways. People can work themselves up into emotional states and there can be manipulation and there can be different things. And, and then there can be people who have tremendous truths, but they never, they never have any passion they never have any emotion, any heart for the truth itself. It doesn't move them in any way. So we can have all of those things. But what Jesus is saying is that the very person of the Holy Spirit is the fire, his presence. He is the ignition of the fire. He, he takes the truth and he takes your spirit and those things together and a fire comes and out of that fire, see, you, you are not making the fire. You are reacting to the fire. And then you have greater emotions and greater affections that begin to come for God. The truth has to be there. Your spirit has to be there. But the fire has to be there as well. Now, in, in the scriptures, biblical worship has a lot of, there's a lot of outward manifestation of worship. The very word in Hebrew means to bow down. So worship is bowing, lifting hands, praying, singing, reciting, preaching. There are times when worship is communion, eating and drinking together, cleansing, ordaining, so forth. But the startling fact is you can do all these outward things and they can be completely in vain. They can be pointless, useless, empty. Remember in Isaiah, it says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. So here, here is something to note. The phrase honor me and worship me shows that worship is essentially a way of honoring God. Now that doesn't make God honorable. It's acknowledging how honorable he is. And then experiencing and reacting to his honor, his worth, his beauty, and feeling that, having it matter to you, having it have weight in your life, and then ascribing to him all the ways that are appropriate to describe and to understand his very character. This is what the psalm says, Psalm 96. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Now you see, whether you feel that verse or not, everything being spoken there is true of God. So this is the truth. So this is true whether you feel it or not. But see, once... You begin to allow yourself to say, 
This is the truth. It matters to me. It's more important to me to ascribe glory and honor to God than anything else in life. Then something starts to happen in your spirit. Now, the illumination and the actual, in a way, experiencing this truth is the connecting point where the person of the Holy Spirit begins to make this real to you. Where it's not just an intellectual ascent or it's not just saying, okay, this makes sense to me. No, rather, it's, it, it begins to touch you in a deep place. And, and, and in your heart of hearts, you begin to realize this, this is the truth. And the Spirit is the fire making this truth alive to you. And you begin, to, you begin to burn somewhat with joy in this. You begin to burn somewhat in maybe repentance with this. Or you begin to, to understand this is more important than doing something that's going to dishonor God. Or you're going to choose his glory over something that actually despises the glory of Christ. So the first thing to see in Jesus' words is that worship is a way of gladly reflecting back to God the radiance of God's glory. So an act of worship is vain or futile when it doesn't come from the heart. So the engagement of the heart in worship is a coming alive of the feelings and emotions and affections of the heart. Now, what's happening then is the truth, the objective truth of who God is, is now penetrating into the subjective reality of your heart. You're beginning to trust it. You're beginning to say, this is true, not just in a general way, but it's true for me. I give weight to this. And what will happen is that truth then begins to transform your feelings. And you begin to be lifted out of the mire of your circumstances, the feelings of powerlessness, the feelings of disconnection, the feelings... Uh, they will never get any better, become irrelevant feelings in the light of the glory of the one you're reflecting back to his radiance. And it lifts you up and it lifts you out. And then your feelings begin to be one of hope, of joy, of peace, of love, of worship. Real affections, real emotions of the heart. And in where feelings for God are dead, then worship is always dead. The first response of the heart throughout the scripture is a need to see the majestic holiness of God and yet at the same time to be stunned by it. Be still and know that I am God, Psalm 46. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And in that silence, in the stillness before the majesty and majestic holiness of our God, a sense of awe and reverence and wonder and sheer at the sheer magnitude of the Lord comes upon you. And see, what happens in that is you cannot help but experience your own brokenness. And instead of that being a bad thing, it becomes a good thing because the sacrifices the Lord really, really wants from you are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Thus says the Lord who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. Okay, He is high, he is lifted up, he is transcendent, he is holy. But listen what he says, he's also near. And also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit. 
to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. See, part of what should blow us away is here is this high and holy God, but a high and holy God who delights in the honesty of the heart of the broken person and says, I rend the heavens and come down to revive the lowly. I rend the heavens and come down to revive the heart of the contrite. He's not turning away from you. He's turning to you in your contrition. And as he comes to you, you don't feel condemnation because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You only feel his grace and his mercy and his beauty lifting you up bringing stillness and equilibrium to your soul, a peace that passes all understanding. And as you get this taste of his presence, the psalmist says, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. One of my favorite verses, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as a dry, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. This is the experience of all who've come before us and all who seek him with broken and contrite hearts now. God always responds to a broken and contrite spirit. He comes and he lifts the load of sin. And instead, in his place, he fills our heart with gladness and gratitude. Streams of living water flow through the broken and contrite spirit. You have turned my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. That my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O oh Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Not only does he take away a past, but he gives you a bright future. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation, and my God, the psalmist says. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. Psalm 130. In the truest experience of worship, the heart longs not for any of God's gifts, even though they're God's good gifts, but rather we wait for God himself. To see him and know him and be in his presence is the soul's finest and ultimate feast. These affections of the heart and worship, pleasure, joy, delight, point to the truest experience of glorious worship. These keep worship from being in vain. Where feelings for God are dead, worship is dead. So I want to close um, this week out with this. There's a path to true worship that any and every one of us can take. If we start even at the lowest level, many of us have kind of desert souls, sort of barren, ones that feel very little longing for God. There are a lot of people in churches who feel very little longing for God. But what this passage is saying is you don't have to start with deep longing. You have to start with your brokenness. There's a, there's, there is a drawing of the presence of God to those who have repentant sorrow. Oh, Lord, I've been prayerless. 
Oh, Lord, I have not been filled with praise. Lord, I have not been grateful. Lord, I have not been loving towards you. To To feel sorrow over our lukewarmness and to allow ourselves to take responsibility even for the guilt we feel for being spiritually and emotionally insensitive to the Holy Spirit. To be honest and broken is to draw God near to you and allow God's glory to shine on the barren soul. You don't have to fix it. You just have to reveal it. The concealed sin is what hardens the heart. The revealed sin is what draws the Father's love and grace and healing power. Now, of course, from all that we've been reading, the highest form of worship is an unencumbered joy in the manifold perfection and presence of God. The joy of gratitude and wonder and hope and admiration. The psalmist again gives us a clue. He says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. That's the highest form of worship is that we we find ourselves in just complete joy and satisfaction in worship, in his presence. But it all begins with this, that hunger in your heart, even the thirst that you experience, is from God himself. It's his first work to make you hungry and make you aware of your hunger. So he bids you come and taste, but tasting will not be enough. You need more than a taste. You need fullness. You need longing, desire. Having tasted the feast before, we begin to recall the goodness of the Lord. Sometimes it seems far off. But we learn to preach to our own souls. Don't be downcast because we are sure we shall again praise the Lord, Psalm 42.5 says. For now our hearts are not very fervent, even though this falls short of the ideal of a zealous, heartfelt adoration and hope. Yet even to acknowledge a lack of fervency is, an, is starting to show God honor. I, I, I've always loved this, this, this picture. We, wa- we, we honor the water from a, a pure spring or fountain, not only by the satisfied awe oh, after drinking our fill, but also by coming back again and again and again to that fountain. It's not just the initial, oh, isn't this wonderful? But it's it's then saying, every time I'm thirsty, I need that water. That's the water I need. That's the water I want. And so God is saying, I have an endless supply of living water for you to drink from. I even have it bubbling up within you. You yourself are now, the, the very fountain of living water lives in, and dwells with you. Not just to have once, but to have over and over again. Whatever it takes. And it's interesting because there's two, I mean, it's two opposite metaphors going on here. Fire and water. The fire of worship, the heat of worship, but also the, the quenching, satisfying of the thirst for living water, both happening at the same time in your lives. Um, we are made for glorious worship. 